You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. Hello, please let me see your ticket stubs for the double-edged double bill. Tonight we showcase John Carpenter's memoirs of a Prince of Darkness. Each week, Adam Thomas and Thomas Mariani will come to the table to discuss the randomly selected yin and yang of a double feature. Then both will have to pick a number between 1 and 10 in order to seal their fates for the next episode. One will have two good movies, the other two bad ones. Let the chaos begin! And I am Thomas Mariani, or John Carpenter's Thomas Mariani. I suppose he has contractual obligation for that. I am Adam Thomas, and in reality, I am just a giant cylinder full of swirling black liquid. We get great audio quality, though. Despite that, well, I'm, I'm really fascinated. <laughs> That's why he sounds like he's in the cylinder, guys. That's the secret of this entire show. Um, exactly. But you're not the only uh, voice here with me, Adam. Uh, we have a guest today. Um, you might recognize his voice from the Needless Things podcast, or if you've ever seen me at Dragon Con doing some panels. It is Mr. Dave West. Dave, how are you doing? Hey, Phantomaniacs. I just want everybody to know uh, this is not actually my voice. It's a stream of tachyons going directly into your brain. I don't know how I feel about this. <laughs> <laughs> yes, this is being transmitted from a separate time. From 1999. <laughs> yes. But Dave, welcome to the show. Um, and I submitted a bunch of topics for you to potentially be a guest on. I really wanted to have you on. And you chose John Carpenter, of course, who was our topic of the week in honor of. It is the man's 72nd birthday this week on uh, January 16th. So happy birthday, John. I'm sure you're listening, obviously. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah. Yeah, while you're smoking weed and playing basketball video games, whatever. You know. Just as spry and ornery as ever, I'm sure. For sure. Uh, but uh, why John Carpenter? What what uh, made you such a fan of the man? Uh, he is my favorite film director. He makes all my favorite horror movies. I just absolutely love his aesthetic, his style, uh, his scores. E- everything. Uh, I'm not going to say every movie he does up through the early 90s, I would say... It's just all gold to me. I, I really connect with his way of making movies and, and his sensibilities. Do you remember the movie that made you sort of fall in love with his aesthetic and all that? You know, I honestly don't. Uh, it's kind of a, a an amalgam of Big Trouble in Little China, Halloween, The Thing. I sort of came across around the same time. And uh, Big Trouble in Little China is is my favorite movie of all time. I think it's the best movie ever made. Uh, but then The Thing is my favorite horror movie. Rowdy Roddy Piper being cast in They Live. I, I'm a huge wrestling fan, lifelong wrestling fan. And, uh, you know, for him to use Piper in that movie and to give him the, the lead role. You know, at that point, uh, if wrestlers had the lead role in a movie, it was typically a lousy wrestling movie. And you got porno level acting and it was just bad but this was one of my favorite wrestlers 
in a legit John Carpenter horror movie. Like I said, just about every decision he ever made just clicks with me. And I, I just, I just love everything about the guy, even, even though he and I disagree about Rob Zombie's Halloween movie. What about you, Adam? Where, when did you fall in love with John Carpenter and what, what do you really love about him and his work? Uh, I, I want to say it's almost the same as uh, Dave. I, I think I saw Halloween, they live in big trouble in little China right around the same time. Uh, and I was the same way about They Live because I also am a big wrestling fan and loved Roddy Piper. Uh, still do. He's one of the greatest heels of all time. What I really love about John Carpenter is he's really, really good at mixing sort of comedy and nonsense with straight up scary shit. That's probably my favorite thing is. And I do love that he does all his own scores as well, even though some of them are just, you know, schlocky guitar riffs and some of them sound similar. They still all fit exactly the movie that they're in but yeah i've been a fan forever i mean the halloween alone you know even if it's not my favorite movie of his or my favorite even of the slasher genre no one can deny the boom it had and what it did and even for independent cinema alone uh so yeah he's responsible for some major major milestones not only in my life but cinema as we know it the first one i ever saw was christine because my dad introduced me to a lot of those like early 80s stephen king movies and christine was definitely one of them but I remember um, really falling in love with Escape from New York, which is still my favorite John Carpenter movie. And I think that one, along with some of his other movies, whether they be low or high budget, what I love about him is that he always manages to use sort of every single dollar of that budget. Like the old Native American phrase, like use every part of the buffalo kind of thing, where if it's a super high budget movie, he uses every single dollar and he will show it to you like a thing. And versus like Escape from New York, he knows exactly how to obfuscate when he can't quite afford something, but then also burst out with something big just to really expand the world in a really interesting way. And I think that's all on display here with our two movies, which are uh, very much on opposite ends of that spectrum, (laughs) (laughs) to say the least, uh, where uh, if you're new to the show, um, at the end of every episode, we pick a good and a bad movie based on uh, two choices that Adam and I have, um, and we switch up on quality, and uh, from my two good picks, we end up getting 1987's Prince of Darkness, and uh, from Adam's bad picks, we got Memoirs of an Invisible Man. And uh, two not-as-discussed Carpenter movies, which is interesting. I was excited to talk about anything that he had done, but then when you presented me with these movies, I got even more excited about doing this episode because people don't talk about these two. And I think Prince of Darkness, uh, while it sort of has its quirks, is hugely underappreciated for what it is. Right, which we should probably get into. Uh, Let's transition into our good feature first, Prince of Darkness. Anyone in close proximity has the same dream. What is it? A secret that can no longer be kept. It started a month ago. What started? A life form is growing out of prebiotic fluid. It's not winding down into disorder. It's self-organizing. So uh, Prince of Darkness comes out October 23rd, 1987. Uh, as written and directed by John Carpenter. And it's interesting because this is post, you mentioned Big Trouble in Little China, which was sort of like a big commercial failure, even though it found a cult following later. So this is Carpenter kind of going back to the basics of his early career of like Halloween and 
some of that other sort of low budget stuff. Um, with Prince of Darkness, it only cost three million to make. It made about fourteen million, um, and is actually the second in his sort of thematic apocalypse trilogy. With uh, the thing being the first one, and another underappreciated one that Adam and I have discussed elsewhere in the Mouth of Madness, which is a phenomenal film. But uh, yeah, Prince of Darkness. You know, Adam and I. Uh, we're both talking at the end of our last episode that the first time we saw Prince of Darkness, uh, we both weren't necessarily the hugest fans. This is the first time we visited in quite a while. And Dave, I understand you had a similar situation, right, when you first saw the film? Oh, yeah, I totally didn't appreciate it initially. You know, I was younger. This was 1987. I would say I saw it sometime between 87 and, and 90. It was the VHS days. You went to Blockbuster, the movie store or whatever, and grabbed something that looked cool. You know, it's it's a slower paced, more subdued movie. It's got, I don't know that I want to say loftier themes. It's a little harder to grasp than a guy in a mask stabbing people. So it didn't click with me, you know, on initial viewings. It, it, it wasn't until I got a little bit older and learned to appreciate more methodical horror, I guess that I started to really understand it. Hmm. Well, um, I, I definitely would say that I appreciate it more on the second time. But Adam, did you uh, have a similar experience with revisiting it now? I appreciate it a lot more because of how fucking... I mean, this movie's kind of batshit crazy. When you really get down to it, some of the shit they do in this is wild. Yeah, I can almost ap- appreciate the abstract sort of vision that's here. Uh, like Dave said, it, when I first saw it, I was expecting... You know, a John Carpenter Halloween type movie, and uh, this obviously is not it at all. But um, yeah, I, I definitely, definitely enjoyed it very much more in my second viewing because this is only my second viewing. Yeah, I remember I had a similar experience where, like, in high school, after I had seen like some of the bigger Carpenter movies, I just went through his whole filmography as much as I could at the time, at least. And this was definitely the one where it's like, all right, this is all right. Sort of, I, I get why it was kind of underappreciated at that time. And then uh, now, in retrospect, it's I, I agree. It's just it's so odd. Where like, if you don't know the basic premise of this, is a bunch of college students are tasked by their professor, played by Victor Wong of Big Trouble in Little China, um, to basically go to this uh, abandoned church uh, where Victor Wong and a priest are performing these experiments that, as it turns out, um, involves this giant green cylinder of liquid that contains the son of Satan. (laughs) Which, I, I just love the concept of this one being about this kind of, like, weird religious context of, like, oh, hey, Satan and Jesus and all this stuff was real, but they were sort of these extraterrestrials that came down to Earth and presented their sort of godlike, uh, you know, powers and such um, to us, and we sort of turn that into religion, which we end up warping to our own deeds, which I think leads to my favorite element of this whole movie is the weird sort of, like, understated but really engaging relationship between Victor Wong and Donald Pleasance as the priest. I love their back and forth, and I really love especially Donald Pleasance being so haunted by all these realizations. Like, that whole speech he gives after they literally say about, like, oh yeah, Jesus was extraterrestrial, and religion was sort of created as this way of explaining it. It's like, yes, we end up turning ourselves on each other and all this other stuff through religion. I just love how completely haunted he is this whole movie. I'm a big fan of the idea of the the chariots of the gods and the, the ancient aliens and that kind of stuff as a fictional device because it's not unreasonable to me as a great storytelling explanation for where religion came from. So I like that in this. I like that in Prometheus. Like, I dig that idea. But 
this movie is so heavy on exposition and conversation. As much as they don't do a whole lot to develop the characters, we do spend a lot of time with them sort of talking and speculating and, and explaining things to us. So it was actually, cause I've, I've watched this movie a dozen times, maybe more, uh, but I didn't pick up until several viewings in that that was even part of the plot because it's sort of mentioned in the one scene where they're in the kitchen or whatever. And the, these, these truths are coming out, but it's a talky scene and maybe I'm going to the bathroom or taking a hit from the bong or doing something else. And I just didn't catch it the first several times in the movie. And when I did, it electrified me because I love that idea. I mean, it makes sense, right? I'm glad you emphasized that it was a fictional device, though, as opposed to you being on History Channel, like, aliens. Right, aliens. It's aliens. <laughs> Clearly. <laughs> yeah, I agree that, like, this movie is very exposition-heavy, especially in, like, the first third of it or so, so a lot of this might have especially been lost to me on the first watch, but rewatching it this time, I, I like the fact that even though it is through exposition, you are building a, a lot of background, a lot of engaging stuff that some of the characters are, you know, able to bounce off of, others not so much. I mean, I, I, I'll i state right out that, like, the first 15 minutes or so, I remember that, like, I'm not a big fan of, like, the Brian Marsh character. That's played by Jameson Parker. Just such a block of fucking wood. Can we talk about how distracting Jameson Parker's mustache is throughout the whole movie and Lisa Blount's hair? Like, I can't focus on what's happening in the movie because her hair and his mustache are so outrageous. It's like he stole it off of Tom Atkins' face. He just <laughs> stole it outright and put it on his fucking face. It's like he stole it and doubled it. <laughs> It's a double Atkins. <laughs> no, I definitely agree. I do like that they, you know, throw out the chariots of the gods sort of explanation, the ancient aliens or whatever you want to call it. But like you said, Dave, it's right at the end of a very sort of dialogue heavy scene. It's, you know, and, you know, he was extraterrestrial in origin and blah, 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 and then it literally cuts right away from it. And yeah. uh, that's kind of the only time they really go to it. And to me, that's perfect. Because it's, this is one possible explanation. Maybe it is the classic Roman Catholic son of the devil explanation. Maybe it is. You don't know. They sort of leave it up to you, which I think is really the smart way to go with a movie this wild in concept. Because, again, it's a giant tube of swirling liquid in the basement that is organic and has consciousness and is possessing people. It's fucking batshit crazy. But... Any of the explanations you could give, be it the aliens or the typical Catholic explanation, they're all kind of batshit crazy, too. So it just works that, hey, whatever you want it to be, that's what it is. But yeah, no, it, no, no question, it's evil. It works as supernatural. It works as science we don't understand. It works as biology we don't understand. Like, basically, the point was, this is too crazy for you. Just watch the guy turn into bugs. Oh my fucking god! I forgot about that until I rewatch it this time. That is straight up just nightmare fuel. I love all. There's so much great like nightmare imagery in this movie, even down to something as simple as the the actual sort of visions that they get, um, with the the like transmission from like nineteen hundred nine hundred and eleven or whatever. Um, and that look, it feels like so much like oh, this is the birth of like a found footage horror movie, and this is better than most like ninety minute found footage horror movies. Just this one sequence of looking in front of the church, and it's all like I love the fact that it's also shot on videotape, and then it's the actual camera shooting a video screen. 
Like, it's that simple to, like, create that horrific effect. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, what would you guys say is your favorite nightmare imagery in this movie? I really, really, I think we've talked about this before, Thomas, but I've always been sort of unnerved by either one person in movies or groups of people just sort of standing still and staring at a fixed point. Uh, it's always creeped me out and weird sort of looks or when people start to react to things like, you know, example I can use like inception when all of a sudden they start to notice them when they're in the dream and everyone starts like staring at them and coming towards them. That shit for some reason just unnerves me. And this movie does it in fucking spades. Alice Cooper's face is one of the scariest goddamn things in this movie. <laughs> it's, it's absolutely terrifying that anytime they look out a window, there's five to 10 other faces staring back at them that's scary shit that's terrifying think about it i think about it like this if i looked out the window right now and there's five fucking hobos standing outside my window staring at me i'm gonna shit my pants like there's no question (laughs) so that to me just sticks with me it's terrifying the most horrifying moment to me there's i mean there's so much unsettling imagery in this thing uh, just the idea of possession by another entity is, is makes my skin crawl. But as far as visually, when Donald Pleasance cuts Kelly, I think is her name. The one who begets pos- the one, the one who's going to be the mother of the son of Satan, I guess. Right. Uh, the rot- rotten flesh lady when he cuts her arm off and it just immediately comes back. Like, and, and I honestly think it's probably a limitation of the budget. Like if, if Carpenter had his way, maybe it would have been a really involved effect sequence of the arm slowly growing back like swamp thing style or something. But instead it's just whoop, the arm is back. Like it didn't even slower down. And for some reason that really freaks me out. It's not the way we're used to seeing like, because you know all those demonic limb regeneration scenes we see all the time but (laughs) your horror trained brain expects it to go a certain way but instead it's just bam it's back and it was probably a matter of like okay we've got to trick this shot out we're going to hold this sleeve up and jam your arm through it as fast as you can because that's basically what it looks like but in the context of the movie in the moment it's it's just chilling that's a moment where you realize there's no stopping this thing physically yeah, I think related to that, I, I really love any of the shots we get of, like, the doorway from the other side, where we see, like, that arm of, like, the of Satan briefly coming out. Or especially when, um, I, I believe it is Lisa Blount, is the Catherine character, sacrifices herself and goes into that weird black pool, and we just see one shot of her, like, reaching for mm-hmm. it, and then just being sucked in. That's a great example of, like, how, despite the limited budget of this, the, the few glimpses we get of the horrific stuff just really immerse you in what you, you know, the limited amount you can't see. I just, I, I love how many times he does that here, or even just something as simple as, like, certain choices some of the actors make, where I'll, I'll agree that I think the weakest thing about this is the characters overall, but some of these actors make phenomenal decisions, like Peter Jason's weird guttural noise when he comes up, um, is horrifying, or I forgot the one, um, the one like really tall black guy in the group who just has that horrifying laugh. Or he laughs. Looking at the mirror. Oh yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> he's the best. He's the, yeah, he's the best side character in it, man. When he's singing "Amazing Grace" and shit, you're like, oh, good lord, it's terrifying. Carpenter never really gives us much of a chance to care about these characters, but they do all get to do a thing like they get their shit in like they get to have a a thing or a moment you know who they are it's not like 
wait, who's that guy again? Like they each get their stuff. We just don't really, it's, I feel like there's more character development in most Friday the 13th movies. Yeah, but they all have a quirk at least. Yeah. Yeah. We do get the quirk. Yes. Like Dennis Dennis Dunn is a self-involved asshole Mm -hmm. who who can't even help break his way out of a closet. Right. You got mustache. (laughs) You got, you got, you got red, uh, skinny Yafet Kodo. You got, you know, a bunch of the quirky actors, the guy from They Live, you know, he's the scientist and he's doing the trumpet noise and all that. Yeah, yeah. Th- that's what makes him a little bit endearing, where I'd argue in other movies like Halloween and stuff when when they're just cannon fodder for no reason. Like, at least in this, you get the idea that most of the principal characters come from somewhere. They do have a life. They do have, you know, be it family or a job or hobbies or whatever. And I think it was enough, given the the whole idea and the plot itself. It could have been really overloaded if they went to too much character development as well. Though, yeah, the plot is more the star. I agree. Though, to go back to what something Dave said, that is probably the funniest moment of this whole fucking movie to me. Is like they keep breaking down that wall for a solid several hours, and then the moment the monsters actually start coming into the door, Dennis Dunn like breaks down the wall in five minutes. Well, <laughs> like, and he finally he's been sitting there the whole time doing nothing <laughs> while they've been working their asses off trying to get him out of that closet. And then he's like, oh, I guess I better do something now. And he fucking tears that wall down like he's the Hulk. He's just like, <laughs> get me the fuck out of here. You could have done any of this instead of just asking him, like, have you seen any good movies lately? We're <laughs> making some <laughs> shitty jokes, too. <laughs> Come on. Yeah, I'm uh, gonna shine the flashlight in, his, in Satan's eyes over and over. Right. And then when it reacts, I'm gonna be like, oh, no, I better get out of here. Like, fuck, dude. I agree, you lazy fuck. You pick up a shovel or a, or a table leg or whatever you got, and you break that fucking wall. <laughs> oh, yeah, for sure. Um, but uh, where do you guys think this sits in terms of Carpenter's other films, especially with the sort of Apocalypse trilogy? Do you guys think like this fits comfortably next to The Thing and In the Mouth of Madness on a thematic level, especially? Uh, thematically, I think for sure... I can enjoy both potential, you know, endings for the thing. I, I can lo- I can love the idea that it did get out and destroyed the earth. I can love the idea that it died there in the Arctic or is frozen there in the Arctic waiting to be found again. Uh, but, but the apocalypse trilogy kind of suggests the former, uh, in the mouth of madness, I'll be honest. It's been so long since I've watched that one, but I could very much imagine it fit because these are all very, I don't, I hate to call it Lovecraftian, but they are sort of things from beyond human understanding. Yeah, I think Lovecraftian is a perfect sort of term. Just because of the thing, I don't necessarily go straight to Lovecraft with that one. It's an unnameable horror. I mean, yeah, it's yeah, still, yeah. it's beyond our realm of, you know, understanding. Throughout any of these movies, anybody could have said the great, you gotta be fucking kidding me line from the thing. Because any time, mm-hmm. like, just whatever horrible, like, new um, escalation of whatever threat is happening in any of these movies, it's very similar. I I, I do agree. In, in the Mouth of Madness is probably the most Lovecraftian, given a lot of the literary context sure, and sure. stuff like that. Uh, but I think all of them definitely sort of have that same thing of, like, oh, we're going to kind of explain what this is. Uh, but really, you're just not going to be able to fathom what the fuck's happening <laughs> for a lot of it. It's, it's really all about sort of the suggestion rather than it being concrete. Yeah. Even, like, the thing where you see so much more than, like, the other two movies. It is still definitely more of a gist of, like, oh, it's this sort of weird alien creature that can take things over um, in a vague way. The, that's the brilliant part of the thing. 
we have no idea what it actually looks like. You never yeah. find out what the hell it looks like. So, I mean, whatever you can imagine, it's probably not it. It's probably even worse. Yes, I do agree this fits in thematically. The black liquid, the swirling liquid. You don't know what this is going to look like if it comes to fruition. You have no idea. In the mouth of madness, it's just straight-up nightmare fuel. These They take on appearances and shapes and body forms and tentacles and all stuff that you no one could expect and no one could picture. As far as where it ranks in the Apocalypse Trilogy, I'd probably put this at third, to be honest. The th- thing would be number one, of course. Mouth of Man is number two. And then this one, a solid three for me. Yeah, yeah, I, I, th- I think it would definitely fit that. I think, if nothing else, I will say that as much as I do think In the Mouth of Madness and The Thing are unsettling horror movies, I would say this has some of his, like, scariest imagery, for sure, if nothing else. And it feels like this is definitely him at an even more confident point. Like, The Thing, as much as I do love it, does feel like him really being brash about, oh, you thought I didn't show anything Halloween, well, I'm gonna show you everything! Here's the whole kitchen sink! Versus this movie takes its time, it's a lot more deliberate, and it, uh, which is not necessarily mean that I like it better, but it's something I do appreciate that he can really mix things up. It's something that, like, we definitely talked about in our intro, from Christine through to, like, They Live. Aside from, like, some, like, you know, the, the scores and stuff like that, those are all very distinct movies I would not imagine Carpenter doing. Like, even Starman's in the middle of that. And, like, this even, like, I would not connect these two movies at all to the same filmmaker. I'm glad you mentioned the score. Watching it this time... I feel like I've really sort of underappreciated the score for this movie. I I don't know what it was. It just really clicked with me, this viewing. But the thought occurred to me, and I want to present this to you guys and get what you think about it. Try to imagine this exact same movie, but with a more traditional horror score rather than Carpenter's. How do you think it would come off? I think you would lose a lot of sort of the unsettling dream-like nature of it. I think that's what makes the score work so well with this movie. It's just like, especially like watching it this time, I realized this is the most where like now in his modern like sort of lost themes music days, he's definitely more coming from this movie rather than his earlier scores. Yes. Yes. Yeah, I definitely, I definitely agree. And I, unfortunately, you know, this movie with a traditional horror movie score, it'd be a lot of loud, bombastic noises for jump scares. Like completely. There's a lot of spots in this movie where it could be a jump scare spot and it really doesn't do it too much. Like it's just the ethereal dark score and they just show you what happens. They're not trying to shock you or he's not trying to startle you or make you jump out of your seat. He wants you to watch it and wants you to be involved. And, uh, you know, that's one thing that can happen with, with jump scares to me. Anyways, you jump out of your seat and then you don't watch the next five to 10, maybe 20 seconds because you're so startled. Your heart's pumping everything else. You're not paying attention to what's going on. And I don't think that was his intent here at all. He definitely wants you to sit with this one. Sit attentively. Absolutely. As much as Carpenter's sort of signature style is present here, I do think this movie, more than a lot of his others, needs that score to be as recognizable as a John Carpenter film. In a weird way, I would consider this almost the most traditional horror movie he's made. As as weird and out there as it is, you know, very few of his movies could I see anybody else making. But I could almost see this as something that he wrote and maybe somebody else directed, like as a possibility. Mm-hmm. Whereas you throw his score on it and that like it needs that score to really stand out as a carpenter work. Yeah, I don't disagree with you at all. I can even see this like even being almost I hate to say it, but even this type of story, this type of everything, almost being like a late seventies 
horror film, like with Ride yes. with the Devil, the Devil's Reign, and things like that. To me, this would fit right in there with that. The, what makes this movie definitively Carpenter to me, obviously, is the score, but also the reuse of familiar actors that he uses all the time. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of things that do definitively have the John Carpenter stamp on it. But I agree, this movie could exist. 10 years before it came out. Well, I would also give credit to, like, there's a lot of stuff, I think, especially early on, to sort of establish the real world of this film that kind of feel very carpentry, especially where it's just, like, you know, Victor Wong or Donald Pleasance walking around the church and just seeing the homeless people stand there and doing something weird. I think that feels very much, like, as early as, like, a Halloween kind of stamp for Carpenter, where it's like you're kind of establishing the universe and making things feel a bit lived in, but something is there that looks amiss. Just some one element that completely throws you off track. That's something that I think he did especially a lot in his earlier work, and I think it's still distinctively here in this one, particularly with doing the table setting. Like that one uh, homeless lady who keeps coming up to, like, especially like Donald Pleasant, just like, oh, sir, it's so great what you're doing for the church, and she has, like, all those maggots in her cup and stuff like that. It's just real enough to where when something weird and distinctive like the maggots comes up, it just unsettles you. And I think that's been a stamp of his career for a while. You see a cup of worms and turds and it's time to leave the city that's that's my motto i move out the moment i see that in my <laughs> we're packing up uh but i guess uh, we do have another film to talk about so i guess we can get to our final thoughts then dave as our guest go ahead with your final thoughts on prince of darkness uh it's a movie that i i would think it's fair to say i enjoy more each time i watch it it, it sort of grinds itself into me a little bit more each time uh this last viewing i was fortunate enough to get shout factory's uh most recent blu-ray release it's got a ton of great extra material on it the picture is about as good as it gets one odd thing that carpenter did with this movie the picture i'm sure you guys noticed as well is often blurry around the sides and it's something to do with how he shot it but that's intentional so you're never going to get a crisp, clear copy of this film because he didn't intend it to look that way. Uh, and to me, that just adds to the unsettling nature and the grittiness of what he's trying to convey. But I, I dig it. Um, it's not my top five Carpenter films, but it's one I'm going to watch every couple of years and enjoy the heck out of it. Adam? Pretty much agree with everything Dave just said. I, I, I enjoyed it. On this second viewing, I, I really liked it. Would I put it in my top five, Carpenter? Absolutely not. It is probably the most understated Donald Pleasance performance in a John Carpenter movie, which is saying something because he's still Donald Pleasance. But no, I, I did thoroughly enjoy it. It's a weird, oddball horror film uh, made by one of the masters. So, I mean, if you haven't seen it, if you're a John Carpenter fan, I mean, it's definitely worth a watch. Maybe even worth to own. I, I, I wouldn't even have a problem owning this one and, and revisiting it, you know, once a year or two. It's a it's a decent, you know, little horror movie. Yeah, I'd say it's probably just above middle of the pack for Carpenter for me. Um, which is to say, I do really like it. I do, especially upon this watch, really appreciate a lot of the sort of the bigger thematic things it's going for, despite the small budget. And the cast is doing as much as they can with sort of the limited characters that they have. I think particularly another great Donald Pleasance moment is at the end when he's being wheeled off. And he's just like, oh, I was saved by the grace of God. And Victor Wong's like, giving him this look of, sure, buddy, you did it. <laughs> that, was, that was all you, <laughs> for sure. Um, I, I think there's just a lot of like small, great character interaction moments that kind of get you to be invested enough in the characters. So when some of the stuff happens, um, it can you know still like really weird you out. We build a solid base reality. And it does kind of have the same structure of something like an evil dead 
to some extent, which is like all a bunch of people stuck in one isolated area and they all get possessed and it's a struggle between, you know, not being possessed and be, maintaining your humanity. And also that feels traditional to a lot of other horror movies, but I think there's enough stuff that makes this distinctively Carpenter and one that, as we mentioned, if you uh, had brushed it off, uh, go ahead and give it another watch. But uh, before we get into our next film, uh, why don't we have a little ad for an ESO show you could be listening to right after ours. Hey, Geekazoids! The Metal Geeks Podcast is your source for all things geeky from the perspective of a couple of metalheads. And me, George. That's right, and George. This is Carrie the Metal Geek along with... Brutal Dave. And George Tripsis. Join us as we wax philosophical about our favorite subjects. Yeah, like what? Movies. And TV shows. Video games. Comics. Theme parks. And heavy metal. Join us on each episode as we discuss special topics. George hates metal. And find out what's tickling our little geeks. And much more. Come listen to us as we audibly age in your ear holes. You can find us on the social medias at Metal Geeks and visit us on our website at MetalGeeksPodcast.com. Keep it metal. Keep it geeky. And me, George! And now uh, let's get into Memoirs of Invisible Man. It all started on a Tuesday in March. Something's happened at the Magnoscopics facility. What have they done to me? You're in a state of molecular flux. If you want to live, you're going to have to trust us. Where have you been? Everybody's looking for you. I'm here. Sort of. I want my molecules back! Chevy Chase, Daryl Hannah, Memoirs of an Invisible Man. A John Carpenter film. So yeah, Memoirs of an Invisible Man uh, from uh, February 28th, 1992 is when it premiered. Um, and if you haven't seen the film, uh, Dave has a specific plot description uh, from the Amazon, I believe is what you said. This this is the uh, plot description from Amazon Prime. Everybody buckle up for this one. Chevy Chase stars in this hilarious fantasy about a man who is accidentally turned invisible and then drafted by the CIA. Yeah, that last bit is completely off base. That's not at all what it is. I would I would go so far as to say like two thirds of that is completely off base because hilarious fantasy is not really a, a good descriptor either. No, but then again, I'm not sure the movie knows exactly where it lies on the, like, is this no, a comedy or not spectrum? No, yeah. Um, I feel bad for everybody, and I I don't hate this movie. Okay. I do not. But we'll we'll discuss. Well, yeah, because this is one that uh, definitely is sort of seen by a lot of Carpenter fans as, like, the beginning of the end of sort of his uh, mean streak that he had. Even in terms of, like, this is, keep in mind, after Prince of Darkness and They Live were both pretty decent hits, but also he had some, like, production problems with a production company that he was in, like, a legal battle with. And he didn't make a movie in between They Live and this. And uh, then he was brought into this production, um, which uh, was designed as a Chevy Chase vehicle. They already had people like uh, Ivan Reitman and R Richard Donner were, like, thrown off the project because uh, Chase had a lot of issues with, like, their vision for the script. Even Academy Award-winning screenwriter William Goldman was thrown off the project and said it was one of his worst experiences making a movie. Um, and I, I think a lot of that, as much as I do agree, I don't feel bad for most of the people in this movie. <laughs> except for Chevy Chase, because it definitely seems like this is a vanity project where he doesn't quite know what he wants to do at all. And if nothing else, I think if you had cast somebody that would have fit Carpenter's original idea for this, which was to be North by Northwest meets Starman, um, I think if you casted somebody more in the vein of, like, a Cary Grant, I think you would have had a much better movie than what ended up being here. 
Well, I think what we have here could have been a great John Carpenter movie in his style that we've discussed, you know, thus far, or it could have been a great Chevy chase movie. The problem is Chevy chase didn't want to be Clark Griswold in this movie. And that's kind of what we want from Chevy chase. Like he's not a guy, he's not Robin Williams. He's not going to transition from comedy to drama. It's just not his wheelhouse. So if it had been done either as that Carpenter movie or as that more physical comedy, zany, crazy movie, I think either way, it might've been a huge hit, especially with ILM on board doing these incredible special effects. Cause whatever you want to say about the movie, it looks phenomenal. I do definitely agree. The effects hold up surprisingly yeah, well considering 92. Yeah. Especially, I, I think, you know, if Carpenter especially had kind of like gone more in the vein of Starman, there are moments that remind me of Starman, this movie, like particularly yeah. when you have like the building like half invisible, half not in just certain streaks and everyone's sort of like gazing in amazement at it. I, I love sequences like that. I think there's definitely when it sort of gets to that vein and also has the sort of North by Northwest man in the wrong place, wrong time being chased by Sam Neill and all the other people in the CIA. There's a lot of interesting stuff there and just, doesn't coalesce with like whatever the fuck Chase wanted to do. It's like, no, I'm a super serious actor, y'all. I, I can really progress. It's like, can't quite do that. <laughs> yeah. Like, I, I'm going to go ahead and back Dave already. I don't hate this movie either. Uh, I don't think it's Carpenter's worst at all. Uh, that would be Ghost of Mars. Without fucking question. That's Ghost of Mars. <laughs> Which was almost the choice. Uh, <laughs> oh, gosh. I wouldn't yeah. hear. Oh God, it's so bad. Uh, but no, it, it's, it's not the worst. It's just, uh, I kind of agree with both of you as well, where if it might've been a different lead, it would have worked a lot better or it may be different both leads. Cause Daryl Hannah's just, let's face it. She's awful. But, uh, I like the, all the supporting cast. I like Sam Neill. I even like Michael McKeon in it. I think he's fun. Uh, I like the, I, I don't know the actor's name, but the, the one who was trying to get with Daryl Hannah, the one who talks like this for some reason. <laughs> the one who sounds like <laughs> Matt Berry stole his voice. Like, That's ten really years later. weird. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, him, I thought was, I thought he was fine. Uh, you know, there's a, there's a great cast here, a really cool idea, a cool story. It's just Chevy Chase. You can tell, like you said, it's just his fucking ego on screen. It's yeah, like, dude, you're not gonna do it. Like, honestly, I instantly watch this. I'm like, man. At this time, Bill Murray or Jeff Goldblum would have totally worked. Oh my I, god! Yeah, I especially agree with the Bill Murray because I think the the big thing here, the moment where I knew this casting didn't work, is there's a bit where he's talking about like after he's invisible, where he's like, "I didn't realize the power of being seen," and you're like, "Chevy, Chevy, mm-hmm. that's your whole shtick." <laughs> like, I'm sorry, <laughs> but you're a guy who knows exactly the power of being seen, being the point for everyone to stare at in the room. And like, oh, yeah. even even with this character, there's a lot of that. Where it's just like there's there's so much more arrogance early on that doesn't feel like somebody who maybe lost their way from being a good person. It's just like, no, you're f- too far gone. And then he's like, no, I'm super serious and emotional. It's like, cut the shit. We know that's not oh, like like when he walks into the fucking whatever the the building is that gets turned invisible, and he's like, oh, I'm so hungover, and he's sleeping, he wakes up. Do you get to the birth of Christ yet? Well, wake me up, huh? And it's like he's just a prick. Imagine either. Dennis Quaid or Bill Pullman? You already said one name I can't handle. (laughs) (laughs) 
you know, I would agree with the Bill Pullman casting in particular. I, I, I think that would for sure. Yeah, I think that would really work. Um, and it's a shame though, because like I do, I think Carpenter's putting a lot into this as much as he can, especially considering apparently making this movie was a nightmare, just with like it's using these old-fashioned Vista Vision cameras where they would basically shoot the scene once with Chevy Chase as regular, and then again with him in like the bodysuits, so they could track all the visuals and stuff with each movement. And apparently that was just a nightmare to do at every single turn. Um, but I could, I see there's like a lot of potential with a lot of like the cool set pieces. Like I really love the bit of them in the park. Where um, he tries to get the one um, professor, the yeah, the one professor, yeah. right, to help him out, and then he's being chased by the CIA, and he keeps taking off articles of his clothing, and they keep losing him. That's a great bit in this movie, where it's like I said, it's very Hitchcocky, North by Northwest. Oh, I got like be chased at this point, but having the invisible element really works. There's a lot of creativity on display here, but at the same time, you can kind of see how like a lot of those weird sort of script stuff really does hamper. Carpenter's vision a lot of sort of like the studio meddling stuff like I I would say with Daryl Hannah I don't think it's a problem of her it's just that character is such a weird afterthought like she is introduced initially and then like oh Chevy Chase stood me up then halfway through the movie oh hey I'm here now <laughs> remember me everybody I don't buy that love story for for a second that and they don't have good chemistry but the script didn't do them any favors either well it was just unnecessary it feels like a thrown in angle you know, there's got to be a romantic lead for Chevy Chase for some fucking reason. It's unnecessary. There doesn't need to be a love interest. Or if there is, it really should have been well more fleshed out. But one thing I will say, is Sam Neill not looking directly at him the entire time he's invisible? Every <laughs> scene? But he's dead ball staring right at him. I felt like, that so way obvious. too. And I don't know if it's Neil's fault or if it's the editor's fault or whose fault it is. But there, yeah, there were several times where I was like, is there some subplot where he's letting him get away? No, that's true. He he weirdly does have more though chemistry with Sam Neill in like a villain protagonist situation than any of his scenes with Daryl Hannah. Um, but I think it also just has to do with like this is definitely actors who are dealing with incredibly revolutionary technology they couldn't quite grasp how to deal with. We're just like I gotta like not face Chevy, but also I'm an actor who likes to make eye contact, so it's kind of a bit off for me, but at the same time, I like Sam Neill in this movie that was a villain. I think, especially like the whole sequence where Chevy has him at gunpoint and he's being tasked away and he's just like, do what he says, let him kidnap me, I guess, whatever. I, I think there's, there's a lot of fun with his character. Once again, he just needs a better partner. Yeah. He's fucking yeah. Sam Neill. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, and the thing is too, there's no question. I mean, I read, I, it's in the notes, but I also read it and heard about it. You two, of your main leads who are just notoriously unbearable to work with. And it already puts everyone on set, even the consummate professionals like a Sam Neill or things like that. You already know they're like just wanting to just go through the paces to get the yeah. fuck out of it. So unfortunately that does always hamper a movie as well. And I, I'm not, not sure that that's not a, a tripping factor to maybe some of the problems with this movie to where people maybe weren't giving it their all because they just frankly didn't want to fucking be there director included. Yeah. I mean, hampering and also all the visual effects nightmare stuff. It's probably just a, it's not the best set necessarily. Well, I can't imagine it's fun to sit around just basically watching Chevy chase be a giant baby all day long and, you know, aggravate, the director, the guy in charge, the guy who's who's shepherding 
this project that everybody wants to succeed that, you know, these are professionals, these are actors, these are creators, these are effects people, these are, you know, whatever that, you know, they're not part of this because they want it to fail. They want this to be a success. They, they want to be excited for it. It's their jobs. The and fucking to, gaffers want it to succeed. Yes, absolutely. 150 crew members want this to work. And you get one guy who should want it to work more than anybody. The fucking lead, his passion ego project is just being a fucking cock to everybody. And, and normally I don't run, you know, talent down like that. But there are so many stories of Chevy Chase just being absolutely horrible. And I love Chevy Chase. Oh, me but too. apparently he is just a supreme shithead. So I don't feel badly talking about that. Oh, I mean, dude, there's voicemails of him with, you know, with Dan Harmon. He was yeah, banned. Community stuff, yeah. Yeah. Stereo Terry in the back of the head. You know, I mean, he's, he's, he's a fucking, he's a prick. It's well known that Chevy Chase is one of the biggest Hollywood pricks. And I mean, obviously look at his career. It's, it's clear that that's what happened to him. But, you know, back to this movie, I really do think they had something here. It's a really cool idea. It's just, I, it feels like there, nobody's heart was in it. Well, no, it's, it's what you're talking about. It feels like just like a lot of conflicting ideas about what the movie necessarily needs to be. And especially Chevy Chase at the center, which is like, I want this to be a showcase for me and my dramatic potential. And it's like, he work really well as like the smarmy guy who we might get like some kind of like wry comment and stuff from. And then we can have like a bit of fun with you. But at the same time, there's a bit of a dangerousness. I don't believe any of like the dramatic stuff that happens with this movie, especially with like the Daryl Hannah stuff and... Can we talk about all the horrible implications of that fucking ending singer thing? <laughs> Where it's like, oh, hey, I'm invisible now. We're going to have a kid in the middle of, like, the fucking snow avalanche woods. Everything's fine. <laughs> well, I read that Carpenter had filmed a birth. Jesus. <laughs> but I couldn't find out any details about it. And, you know, one, yes, that sounds like a very John Carpenter thing to do. But uh, I want to know more about this. But I, I just read it in one place. I put it in my notes. I should have put my attribution in here. But obviously the studio was not going for the weird invisible baby birth or whatever. <laughs> no, that would fit more in the horror-directed version of this right. as opposed to what this necessarily is, which is still like a weird aberration in its own right. Uh, but I guess uh, we should go into our final thoughts then on this one. Um, Dave, your final thoughts on Memoirs of Invisible Man, especially uh, would you say this is the beginning of the end for Carpenter? Um, you know, it's hard for me to say that because we do get, uh, in the, the mouth of madness after this, uh, we do get, I think body bags was after this, wasn't it true? Yeah. It was like right after this. Yeah. yeah I mean, I, I wouldn't say it was the beginning of the end. I think it might've been to a certain extent, the beginning of the end for Carpenter personally, because from what I understand, he was very crushed by basically everything that happened with this movie. Uh, and it, it really was a blow to his desire to create, it seems like. Uh, but I, you know, like I said, I don't hate this movie. It's, it's not great. It's not necessarily something I'll seek out, but if I'm zipping around on prime late one Saturday night and I happen to notice it's free, uh, you know, a few years from now, I'll watch it again. And like I said, the effects ILM's effects are, you know, there's, there's stuff. This is 1992. There's stuff in this movie that looks as good as anything we, we'd we see right now today. For sure, yeah. Uh, Adam, your final thoughts? Uh, I mean, I agree with Dave again. You know, apparently we're dating now. Are we? Did we just become best friends? I think I but, just gave you a ring. 
Oh, what? Wait, 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 wait. Tachyon um, ring. Yeah, oh, good. Thank God. Uh, no, it's uh, it's not a it's not a terrible movie. It's not a great movie. It's it's watchable. I don't know that I think this is the downfall or the beginning of the downfall of Carpenter's career. But what this feels like to me is almost like a, a land of the dead, George Romero situation mm. to where he got into the studio, a big, bigger studio movie with a decent sized budget. And they just fucking micromanaged pigeonholed shitty, you know, lead everything like that. He wasn't able to do what he wanted to do. So then he, he goes off and starts, you know, yeah, he had body bags come out, but he didn't, you know, he was the host, really. And then, yeah, In the Mouth of Madness was great, but then that was it. Like, he had one more good one left in him. And because uh, everything after that is just a pretty steep decline on quality. And uh, so, was this the start? Maybe not, but this is, I'd say, responsible for his bitterness, maybe a little bit. Yeah. Uh, I got to imagine it was awful. For him on the set and him to work, you know, a working environment. So, eh, but again, you know, if it's on, I'm not, a, I'm not mad at it. I might watch it. Uh, if there's something better, I'm going to watch that first, but still <laughs> not the worst. Yeah, I would definitely say it's not the worst one, uh, but it feels kind of like a bellwether where I do agree. I like some of the stuff in body bags, which to be fair, he did direct a couple of segments, particularly the gas station one, which is the really good segment of that particular anthology I, I would say yeah after mouth of madness then you get a lot worse movies necessarily this um I, i'd say there's enough here that makes it i agree watchable but at the same time it, it's definitely more in a way of like oh man i can see the better movie that's here i can see some like the wonder and curiosity and the sort of fantasy stuff that feels more in the vein of like an underrated one of his Starman. but then it just ends up getting really complicated with a lot of like sort of studio problems and ego of the star that even if you don't know a lot of that stuff going into it it's still definitely comes off on the screen uh despite mm-hmm. some pretty solid people all around like i do we didn't mention him but uh i like steven tobolowski the sam neil sort of superior who keeps coming in i just love the idea of steven tobolowski being a superior to sam neil in any context it's so fucking funny to me <laughs> that guy's good in that yeah, yeah yeah great character actor one of the best ones uh but yeah as it stands it's definitely not the worst carpenter but i feel like it's it's a it's a sign of things to maybe come in the future but uh, that is the end of our discussion of our two movies for the evening. Uh, but we did have some feedback to read because every Monday on our Facebook and Twitter profile at DEDBpod, we ask all of you about like, hey, what are your favorite, least favorite things related to whatever topic we're doing? And so you all had some stuff to share about John Carpenter. And so we'll go ahead and read uh, these feedbacks here. First off, uh, James Rodriguez says, Halloween is one of my all-time favorites alongside The Thing, A Song Precinct 13, They Live, and I have a soft spot for Christine. Uh, for my least favorites, uh, the obvious choices are Escape from L.A., Vampires, and For Good Reason. Um, Rafe Telsh says, My favorites are some of his underappreciated ones like Prince of Darkness, Big Trap in Little China, They Live, and In the Mouth of Madness. It goes without saying that The Thing is his greatest achievement. The least favorite uh, are all of his later works, though, particularly Escape from L.A. and Vampires. Uh, Scott Crawford says, his best film is my second hor- favorite horror film of all time, The Thing. Um, the isolation and paranoia and creature design is just stellar. Uh, my least favorite would have to be Escape from L.A. I still enjoy it as a So Bad It's Good movie. All right, all right. But- <laughs> Hold on just a minute. Well, Everybody- save, your, save, save your comments for the end of the feedback, sir. We'll get yeah, to you in a second. Um, it's Escape from L.A. I still enjoy it as a So Bad It's Good movie, but it's just a letdown of a sequel. Though Bruce Campbell's small cameo is awesome. Uh, Oliver Sloan says, Best Big Tremble China. Prince of Darkness in the Mouth of Madness, They Live the Thing, Worst Escape from L.A., Memoirs of an Invisible Man, Village of the Damned. 
Uh, Aaron Lindstrom says, uh, can't say anything bad. Is it bad that I like uh, Vampire's Escape from L.A.? Brian Kane says, uh, Ghosts of Mars watches like a tie-in video game adaptation of a movie that's not all that great in the first place. Uh, Stephen D. at WaitingFTH on Twitter said, uh, Can't say I've seen everything. Uh, Prince of Darkness is on my watch list. Uh, but the best, Halloween, The Thing, Big Trevor in Little China. But you know that already. The worst is probably anything after Escape from L.A. And uh, Stuart Brooks has this colorful feedback about where he says, uh, fuck whoever did The Godfather. I can't even recall his name. John fucking Carpenter, however, is a fucking genius. I believe his name is Francis Ford Coppola, but we'll go with that. Uh, but Dave, you, you have a defense to mount? Come on, Escape from L.A.? That movie's so much fun. You guys are crazy. I just want to say, Aaron Lindstrom, you are not wrong to like Escape from L.A. I, if I had a prize to send you, I would send it to you right now. Because that hey, movie is a treasure. We did dystopian future movies on this show, and Escape from L.A. was my bad choice. We, we have talked previously. I would probably put it around the camp of Memoirs of Invisible Man, though, for me. Where there's enough yeah, interesting yeah. ideas where it's not, like, worse of the worst. I would honestly say my least favorite, and I only watched it recently. I caught up on some of the ones I hadn't seen. Uh, it was Village of the Damned, his remake. I think it's so dull. And it's such a lesser version yeah. of the movie. I think you could have improved some things on, but it's so slow and dull. And yeah, just I agree. Have any spark. I mean, as I said, Ghost of Mars, my least favorite by, I don't even know how. It's, it's literally the only John Carpenter movie I straight up don't like and can't watch. I challenge you. <laughs> I lose. The, the Ward. No, I that one didn't bother me. I know a lot oh, of people. You're out of your fucking mind, dude. <laughs> That's a terrible film. Um, it's not what I wanted from John Carpenter, but as far as just being a movie, I did not find it offensive in the way that I do Ghost of Mars. Does it offend um, you that that's John Carpenter's last directed movie? Because it fucking oh yeah, should. It, well, it's upsetting. It upsets me. Yeah, I don't want a falling down situation. Um. <laughs> If if the ward happened earlier in his career, well, one, it would have been a whole lot cooler. But, you know, as a movie unto itself, it, it doesn't make me angry like Ghost of Mars does. But I there aren't really any Carpenter films. Like, I hated Escape from L.A. the first time I saw it. But because it's John Carpenter and Kurt Russell, I've watched it. Well, and Bruce Campbell in his brief cameo. Uh, I've watched it a bunch of times since then. And I love it now. I don't want to say it's garbage. It's ridiculous, but it's meant to be ridiculous. It's supposed to be an absurd, over-the-top commentary that is an update of the absurd, over-the-top commentary that Escape from New York was in the 70s. Like, tonally, they're the same within the context of their eras. That's a whole other episode, you guys. I'm sorry. Well, that, that's true, and one we already did, <laughs> as we literally stated. Uh, but, but no, uh, but you know, I'll also say that um, I watched Vampires for the first time in prep for this. I don't hate vampires. I hate aspects of vampires. If anything, it's it's another one kind of like this where I see a lot of potential with like I love how that world's set up, like the yeah. opening scene of James Woods and his team like going in and killing those vampires in that one little cabin area i really dig that and i like the sort of relationship between him and the padre character that kind of follows him around um i think it's really just the weird subplot with cheryl lee and daniel baldwin i do not like at all that really sinks the movie for me there's a lot of weird implications with that yep i completely completely agree with that because and james woods is real fun in it uh the guy who plays valak the main vampire really fun 
you know, he, he looks intimidating, scary enough, but still kind of alluring. Uh, the fact that he's the bad guy from Karate Kid 3 blows my mind. But um, I, I don't mind vampires. I think it's fun. It's got a cool, his score in it's really cool, like a neo-western sort of score. It's surprisingly good cinematography as well. I'm surprised oh, yeah. by how good the cinematography is in that movie. Yeah, I don't hate on vampires. Uh, Dave said his favorite was definitely A Big Trouble in Little China. I've said Escape from New York. What is yours, Adam? What is your favorite Carpenter movie, hands down? It's a tie between The Thing and Big Trouble, honestly. I have posters for both hanging up in my fucking kitchen, believe it or not. Probably Big Trouble. Honestly, probably Big Trouble. I think it's that's one of the most fun movies in the world. Yeah, I, I mean, I definitely rewatched it before um, we did this as well, and I hadn't seen it in a while. And I, I just forgot, especially just how, that's another one where it's the escalation only, it's just how ridiculous this entire world gets. And Jack Burton is, like, such a great satire of action characters. It's one of the best, like, underappreciated satirical characters of all time. In terms of how blustering he is, and how much everyone's just like, you're a fucking moron. <laughs> Get out of the way so we can do something. But he's in disguise. In the in the brothel, I I can't stop <laughs> laughing. The second he shows up to the second he takes off the disguise, he kills me. That movie's fantastic. Yeah, and it's it's a bummer that especially we didn't get more weird studio movies from a carpenter because that definitely feels like it's one of those weird like mid to late eighties sort of big budget actioners with amazing set design and weird creature effects and all this other stuff that just didn't entertain audiences at the time, didn't track them whatsoever, and would just only grow to be appreciated later. It definitely feels like it's a, it's a lot around those lines of just like a movie that was just too weird for its own good at that particular time and could only be appreciated later. Is the Dwayne Johnson like remake or whatever, like shelved? I, I haven't heard anything else about it. It's been a good, what, like two years since I heard anything yeah. concrete about that other than Dwayne Johnson saying, that's the thing I'd like to do, but I mean, now he's got, you know, these Jumanji things happen. He's got a TV show. Black Adam is happening. Like, and, and look, I'm not opposed to more from the world of Big Trouble in Little China. It needs to be very carefully curated. Uh, mm-hmm. Somebody with a passion for that world needs to head it up. But, uh, I, you know, I'm not going to say, no, don't do it. It's terrible because nothing's ever going to change the original movie for me. That movie's always going to be fantastic. Yeah, um, it would be interesting to see somebody kind of take that and do something new with it, um, especially considering some of the aesthetics of it uh, could, if in the wrong hands, be not great, <laughs> to say sure, the least. Sure. Yeah, yeah. But um, that movie is just a toe an interesting line. But uh, thank you for all that feedback. Uh, we also want to thank some people out there like Chris Oliver for the intro and outro music used in our show. Listen to more of his music at chrisoliver.bandcamp.com. Thanks to Emily Scarter for the art that we use for our show. And thanks, of course, to Mr. Dave West. Dave, thanks for coming on. It's the first time I've ever podcasted with you, actually. We've been doing panels for years. We've never just been on the mics together um, in this particular context. Why don't you go ahead and promote yourself, plug yourself. Anyone who doesn't know Dave, where can they find you? Uh, every single Friday, you can find a new episode of The Needless Thing. Things podcast wherever you get your podcasting uh please follow me on social media phantom troublemaker on instagram needless things podcast on instagram uh they're both on twitter too but honestly that's all just like leftover junk that gets spammed out from everywhere else uh and please come and join the needless things podcast facebook group uh, where we talk about toys movies music and all manner of pop culture dorkery yes dave's a very busy man if you follow any of his feats, <laughs> it's just so much shit. <laughs> I, I have to stay busy or I'll lose my mind. Of course, that's what we 
all strive for. Um, and uh, you can find us doing our little rinky-dink operation over here on at DEDBpod on Twitter and Facebook, or you can email us uh, some feedback at doubleedgedoublebill at gmail.com, all spelled out. And uh, you can also find me on my own individual account at NotTheWho'sTommy, where I uh, post my musings on there. And uh, also I do some writing at MarianiThomas.wordpress.com, where I post reviews and stuff. And I also do uh, some satirical superhero news over at uh, TrueSuperheroFans.com. And, uh, Adam, you still do the ghoulish gourds and such? I do, I do. I'm a little backlogged right now. But, uh, yeah, facebook.com slash ghoulish gourds. I'd start out when I was painting foam and plastic pumpkins, but then I moved to Christmas bulbs. Now I'm doing canvases for people. I just did a skateboard deck the other day. Uh, so kind of anything you need, I can do. Uh, mainly pop culture related, but if you want, like, a portrait of your family, your pet, whatever, I can definitely handle it. Uh, if you reach out to me and commission something, I'll cut you a deal if you said you heard it on the show. And, uh, yeah, that's about all I got going on. Don't look for me anywhere else, though, because I don't fucking exist. I leave leaving behind a footprint, man. <laughs> you're, you're truly an invisible man on the social medias, as it were. And in my house. <laughs> <laughs> Well, to hear Adam's bodiless voice, uh, you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, Spotify, Stitcher, and any other podcasting platform out there. Um, if you're listening on ESO, why not dig into the archives for our first several episodes we did? And uh, just make sure to rate, review, or at least share us around because that gives us more visibility. But we have to go ahead and skedaddle out of here. And before we do, uh, we're going to do our picking for next week as the tradition of the show. And, uh, you know, next week in honor of Bad Boys for Life is coming out, uh, we decided to do something we've been kind of mulling over since the start of the show even buddy cop films oh i thought it was sequels no one wanted oh, oh okay well. oh we gotta change your <laughs> picks real quick over there Adam. um <laughs> but uh you know uh you've got your two uh good picks um i assume for buddy cop films and i've got my two bad picks and when we have a guest like mr dave west over here uh they get to pick a number between one and ten in order to get uh whatever is closest to the good and the bad choice for us so for adam's two good picks dave a number between one and ten Seven. At number eight, I have the James Conn led uh, with Mandy Patinkin, Alien Nation. Oh, nice. I've never seen it. It's a fun one. Oh, you're in for a treat. I really love it. Yeah. At number two, I had Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. Oh, so nice. Phenomenal movie. (laughs) Yes. Totally on board with that. But now, Dave, my two bad picks. Number two, one, and ten. Three. Okay. At... Number five, I actually have one I also haven't seen before, but it's sort of infamous. I've heard many fun things about it. Um, it is 1991's Samurai Cop. Oh, wow! Oh. Hell, you haven't seen Samurai Cop? I, I've never seen Samurai Cop. <laughs> oh, that's the best. Oh, <laughs> you guys can have a fun episode. <laughs> oh, goodness. this is like Miami Connection good. This is awesome. <laughs> All right. I'm all right. so happy. This is going to be like, I'm like tearing up. This is going to be my favorite episode of all time. <laughs> <laughs> well, at number nine, I had one I'm sure would have given you so many more tears of joy. It is the classic Jean-Claude Van Damme, Dennis Rodman vehicle, Double Team. Oh, for yes. fuck's sake. Thank God. Jeez. <laughs> Narrowly averted disaster. Yeah, <laughs> it's pretty bad. Samurai Cop is more celebrated than Double Team. <laughs> <laughs> well, having just watched uh, Bloodsport for our needless commentary, uh, I can tell you I would rather watch Samurai Cop than any Jean-Claude Van Damme movie right now. Yep, I don't blame you. 
Well, on that note, uh, it's time to go ahead and skedaddle out of here, but uh, we should remind all of you that we are transmitting this from the year 1999. This is not a dream. This is a broadcast. Nothing can save you. Bye. <laughs> has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping through Amazon.com or the Tee Public Store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek.